All right. Uh, before we jump into our teaching, uh, my name is Wally. I'm the teaching pastor here. Excited to be with you all fine people. It is one of my favorite things in the world is to gather and be able to jump in and do this together as the church, uh, that we gather and we experience this season known as Advent, and we'll get into that. But we are in week two, the second Sunday of Advent. Uh, but before we go there, uh, we do want to give a financial update. So through the month of November, where we're at uh, for Walker Harbor, but all the Harbor churches, I believe, do we, do we have that slide, Jeannie? Is there a um, financial slide, if you will? So this is through uh, November. If you see year-to-date budget, that is what um, we need to hit our budget. And then the green is where we are at through November, which means we are in the good. So that's always just a beautiful thing. Um, so especially heading in December, heading to the end of the year, um, good, 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 good. And we'll continue to do that because this is about us as a community uh, pouring into how we can best love Walker well as a community. And so we want to keep doing this well because we also very much want to be known as a community of generosity, uh, not just with our resources, but also with our words and our lives. Like it's all knit together. These are not separate things. So we are holistic people. And so everything that we do and everything that we have and all of that, yes, that we want to move toward loving God and loving our neighbor. So well done. Uh, thank you for participating with us in this. Um, we're going we're gonna to keep rolling. So uh, with that, we're starting a brand new series today called The Greatest Story ever told by the most unlikely disciple, by the most unlikely disciple, um, which is uh, a, a lot of fun. And here's the thing. This series is actually a sub-series underneath a series that we'll be doing starting today that'll go for the entire year, which is we're going to go verse by verse through the gospel, what is known as the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. So we're going to spend a year in Matthew, which will take us to all sorts of places, of course, but to go through Matthew, and if you're like a whole year, yes, a whole year, which is actually really quite short uh, to get through the whole thing, but we're going to do it, and it'll be lots of fun. But within it, there are these sub-series that we'll have uh, because there are all sorts of things. The beautiful thing is you go through uh, the gospel of Matthew, you go through it, and there's all of life that essentially gets touched onto, and so you kind of have all these sub-themes within it. So we're going we're gonna to do that. Uh, but we're starting this one, specifically the greatest story ever told by the most unlikely disciple, in a sense because, is, and I think that's what it's called, but uh, as we're in this season of Advent. Advent is about active participation. It, it isn't just sitting back. It isn't passive. It's involved and attentive to the ever-growing presence of the one who rescues, redeems, and restores. So my hope and my prayer is that we would have ears to hear and hearts to understand what the Spirit then is saying, sharing, whispering, or shouting to each and every one of us and to us collectively this morning. That's the deal. So uh, for this next year, Matthew. Here we go. We're going to walk through it. It's uh, um, 
when we say the gospel of, it's the biography of Jesus' life told by a, a fellow named Matthew, and we call it a gospel. So gospel, though, in the Greek transliterated is the word euangelion, and it's what we translate as good news. That's what it means, but transliterated is euangelion, good news. So this is the good news of Jesus by means of a guy named Matthew. So this is the story of the life, the teachings, and the ministry of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. All those things mean the same thing. The Christ is the anointed one, the Messiah, the coming one, the greatest story ever told by a Jewish youngster who worked as a tax collector for the Roman Empire before he became a disciple of Jesus, which would make him the least likely. That's what's putting him in. Because if you are a tax collector for the Roman Empire, you're a traitor to your people. Because now he's going to tax his own people into immense, kind of unbearable poverty. So this raises some questions. Why would we spend a, a, a year in, a, in Matthew's gospel? Well, one... We wanted a biography of Jesus. So this is one of the reasons why we did this, is we wanted to immerse ourselves in one of the biographies of Jesus. And then Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those gospels, are usually known as synoptic gospels. And synoptic comes from two Greek words, which mean to see together, or more literally, able to be seen together. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are able to be seen together, which just means that even though they each have their own like writer and their own kind of personality to the text, the material, the arrangement makes it easy to kind of set them side by side and look at them and compare them one with the other. Now, it's under, widely understood that John, so John's gospel, was written the last, the latest, and so, and it was a good number of years later, and that combined with John has his own agenda, and we should say that each gospel writer has an agenda. That's not a bad thing. Uh, but John specifically is, he's writing to a Greek audience, and his agenda is new creation. And he has his own unique style. He's a bit of a, a, a poet, a bit of an artist, and so it makes his book significantly different. So scholars, they just kind of say, let's set that one aside. So if we just look at the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have similarities that lead scholars to conclude that all three are drawing their material from a common source, or, at two, or that two of them are based on the other. Specifically, they tend to think Matthew and Luke are borrowing a good bit or using Mark as their jumping off point. So um, I, I want to enjoy, and that wasn't the nerd part. I'm going to now in, ask you to join me in a bit of some Bible nerdism as we get into, like, why Matthew? Why Matthew? So let's do this. Matthew has 1,068 verses in it. Luke has 1,149 verses. And Mark has 661 verses. Between Matthew and Luke, they reproduce 582 of Mark's 661 verses. The material that Matthew and Luke have drawn from Mark is almost entirely material dealing with the events of Jesus' life. So the events of Jesus' life. Most of the additional words, and this is important, that Matthew uses that Mark does not are to specifically show us what Jesus 
said beyond what Jesus did. In other words, Matthew offers us the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. Broadly speaking, to Mark, we owe our knowledge of the events of Jesus' life, but to Matthew, we owe our knowledge of the substance of Jesus' teaching, including the seminal and robust teaching known as the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, and that, whoo-wee, when we get there, oh, I can't wait. Because if you were to learn anything, if you were to spend time immersed in anything, the Sermon on the Mount is typically where I tend to point people first. When they say, hey, I'm new to the Bible, I don't know the Bible, where should I start? I usually say, you should start in Genesis and then go through Revelation, and then we'll talk. But if they're like, what? No, wait a minute, isn't that the whole thing? Um, Then I'm like, see, you know your Bible. Uh, But... Then I would say, okay, let's go with Matthew. Let's specifically go with chapter 5 through 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. It's three chapters, so go there. But, so we're going to move beyond some of the nerd stuff um, and just be in different nerd stuff. Um, But we'll go with this. Mark is written to the persecuted church. So Mark is writing to the persecuted church. Luke is writing to the poor. John is writing to a Greek audience, a larger audience. Matthew is more deeply embedded in the Hebrew scriptures and is written to the outsider. So hopefully that gives you an idea of why we chose Matthew. Deeply, more deeply embedded in the Hebrew scriptures, which we often refer to as the Old Testament. So we'll be bouncing back and forth in some of that. And though Matthew writes to the outsider. And if we've learned anything from our country's social and relational meltdown, the church would do well, and this is why, to pay deeper attention to how we grapple with the label of outsider. This should center us in what is referred to as the great commandment, to love God and love our neighbor as our self. Because an embodied trust in the divine immediately raises the question of how we will love our neighbor and love ourself. You cannot do one without the other. Which in one way or another then will have you facing the supposed label of outsider. Whether that's within ourselves or within our neighbor, which is all other people. At some point you're going to go, that label of outsider will come and will knock on your eyelids. So, this takes us to the question of who is Matthew? Answering that will help us further unpack why Matthew is connected with and writing to the outsider. Matthew is Jewish, but his occupation is working for the Roman Empire as a tax collector, so taxing his own people into unbearable poverty... So Matthew himself lives as an outsider to both his employer, because he's a Jew, the Romans are like, no, you don't fit us, and to his own people because they would label him as a traitor. You are a traitor. So now he finds himself as an outsider. And so when he sits down to write this, 
He's writing it to, he knows how that feels, the outsider. Uh, this basic context uh, is, is well said by William Barclay. He was a great biblical scholar. He put it this way, I love it. There is one gift in which Matthew would possess. Most of the disciples were fishermen. They would have had little skill and little practice in putting words together and writing them down, but Matthew would be an expert in that. When Jesus called Matthew, he rose up and followed him and left everything him behind him except one thing, his pen. I mean, I just sat there and sat with that. Well done, William Barclay. Uh, and Matthew nobly used his literary skill to become the first man ever to compile an account of the teaching of Jesus. Ooh-wee. Brilliant. So we're going to begin a journey into and through the gospel of Matthew, of which the beginning, the beginning of it offers a beautiful way to immerse ourselves in this season known as Advent. So if you join me in turning to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew 1, 1 says, this is an account of the origin of Jesus the Messiah. That means the anointed one, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What we begin with is an ancient genealogy, and everyone went, woo! I, that's what, like, when I go to the Bible, they're like, I go right to the genealogies. I know, I know. So, of course, it is awesome. But the way that I see it is the ancient genealogy is like a picture in our Instagram post. It's what lures the audience in and pleads with them to ask about what is the larger story behind this picture. Does that help, modern peoples? Um, For a Jewish writer like Matthew, a genealogy would be the obvious starting point because it would be the most common way to draw awareness to the depth of importance the pedigree for the person who is highlighted in the genealogy, which is here, Jesus. He's giving like, hey, let's, let's look at the pedigree of this person. So from the very beginning, Jesus is being attached to the great King David and the patriarch of the Hebrew people, Abraham. Father Abraham, had, oh, that's it, that's it. Because they can only hear. On, on the live stream. They can only hear that. So if I keep singing, they will turn it off. <laughs> so uh, the, King, the King David part is huge because the Hebrew scriptures highlight the coming one, the one to take up rule and reign, and he would be in the direct line of David. But at that time, somebody already held the king, uh, the title of king of the Jews, At the first century, time of the birth of Jesus, if you will, somebody already held the title King of the Jews. Anyone know who that is? Herod. Herod was King of the Jews. But here's the thing. Herod was not from the line of David. Herod was an Edomite. In fact, Herod, what he did is he had all official registers destroyed in his time, so that no one could prove themselves to have a pure pedigree than his own. We got to get rid of these things because somebody will be able to show that. So much later, many scholars have about 85 CE or AD, Matthew was writing this gospel, and what's he begin with? Genealogy. 
oh, let's go to the pedigree and show about the one. Uh-oh. See, already genealogy gets you in trouble with the empire. Um, so we could deep dive into Herod, but because I tiptoed around for like an hour each teaching of the last seven weeks in Revelation, we're going to save some of the Herod stuff for later. Now, although a genealogy would be the seemingly obvious starting point for Matthew's day, his specific version of the origin of Jesus is brimming with all kinds of fascinating surprise. He does things that are just, whoa, surprising. So here we go. I'm going to read the whole thing. Are you ready? It's just a blast to me. Okay, here we go. Abraham was the father. And when it says Abraham was the father, if you look at one of your uh, other translations, one of the older ones, it was begat. He begat, and this person begat, and it's all the begats, which is a good time. But we're going to go with this version, NIV. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Almost there. After the exile to Babylon. Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel. Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Iliad. Iliad, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathen. Mathen, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Whew. Exhale. That was awesome, right? I mean, just fun. Like, we, we could start over, but we won't. It's a good time. But here's what I know. There's a chance somewhere within that reading you checked out. You began to study the back of your eyelids, maybe. And you had sugar plums dancing in your head. Uh, I get it. I do when we get into this and you're like, oh, these names and oh boy. Yeah, Matthew, here's the thing. Matthew has just announced that the one the world has been waiting for and longing and thirsting and pleading and praying for, he has finally arrived in the flesh. So and he is attached to a much larger story winding through the initial calling and becoming of an entire people, a people who were called to display the image of the divine for the world to see. But 
Instead of a deep dive into all the numerical values, which we could go into, and connections that are being made within this, I just want to simply go over and reflect on a couple larger pieces of an overview. Matthew gives three 14-person sections. So we could go into the numbers there. Three 14-person sections. 14 is a key number. The first leading to the great King David who welded the people together into a nation, giving them strength and a taste of greatness with God. The second section leads to the exile in Babylon, the loss incurred when pride, greed, wealth, and power get married. The third section guides us to Jesus the Christ, the way, the rescue. In short, we see the history of a people laced with incredible ups and downs, wandering deserts, winning and losing battles, living on little, and then living with much, all the while trying to figure out how do we function as children of the divine. And some of these kids, though, have very interesting and nefarious stories. And yet the divine was always at work within these stories. Crazy, messy stories. In the midst of the mess, the Holy One meets them and works through them. Like Judah. Judah treated his daughter-in-law, Tamar, as a prostitute. He first tried to like put her in jail after her husband died. She married his brother, died, and it's like, I need to have kids. And then she, he's like, well, I just need to get rid of you because he's kind of thinking my sons keep dying as they're married to you. You're probably the problem. So he has her put away. Then he treats her like a prostitute, doesn't realize it's her, and that's interesting. Then we get a guy, Boaz, he being the son of an actual prostitute, named Rahab, and Boaz marries the, uh, oh, well, that's, um, that's actually not uh, Edomite, but Moabite, but that's okay, that's my fault. Moabite, Ruth, because you're like, Edomite, Moabite, we could make sure, because you, yeah, got it, right? You all caught that. I know, you get, some people were really getting upset. That's wrong, you baldy. Okay, jeez. All right, so Moabite Ruth, King David, yes. Oh, by the way, who committed adultery with the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who David had killed. That woman is best known by the name Bathsheba, or Bathsheba. Uh, Bathsheba, though, yep, yep. Um, so do you see when we just do this right here, do you see what just happened? The creator of all things is at work all the time, even in the midst of chaos, in very surprising people. Matthew mentions Tamar and Rahab and Ruth. He wrote them in. They are women. If you're doing a genealogy, you only mention women if they're a queen or at least some royal pedigree. Matthew writes in a prostitute, one who's treated like a prostitute, and one who is not a Jew. Because Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, yeah, they have muddied stories. Their lives are stitched together in like ordinary, tattered materials. 
which is actually asking us, the listener, the reader, to pay attention and ask the question, Matthew, why in the world would you even think to write them in? And why would you mention like prostitution, adultery, murder? This is about this king, the coming one's lineage. Well, it's because the great artist uses all sorts of unexpected, shockingly ordinary, and broken people to tell the story of the restoration of all things. This seemingly boring genealogy seems to be saying, watch this. The divine has been doing brilliant, beautiful, and wildly surprising things, crafting the most unlikely history which might have you thinking, what does that have to do with my story, your story? It's a great question. Simply put, everything. Because this shocking genealogy etched in pen has a cosmic heartbeat proclaiming love for all people, every single person, including you. Not because of the name you have, the job you hold, the neighborhood you live in, the color of your skin, or whatever label that is pinned onto us. All the ridiculous labels and categories and subcategories the world uses to hold power over people are all broken and burned up by this rather simple list of names, which declares there are no outsiders. This genealogy just said there are no outsiders in Jesus the Messiah. Did you hear that? This highlights the first word of the divine, and as the church, the people called to image the divine to the world, this should be our first word as well. There are no outsiders, which is overwhelmingly meaningful to me personally because I grew up in a community that said, you don't belong. I grew up in a church that said, you don't belong. Throughout my journey in becoming ordained, I was actually told all the time, you don't belong. I identify as an Enneagram 4, for those who know that, which when healthy can heighten my senses to the understanding of belonging. All of this, then you take all of this and bake it into a society, our culture, which refuses to take serious, serious how the act, this message of you don't belong, is central to a pandemic of violence that we have. This message of in and out, belonging and not belonging, are the chains of an enslaved people placed within a society stocked full with more non-military guns than there are people. Which leads me to think that each morning when we put our clothes on, we all should also probably put on a bulletproof vest before we leave the house. Because this society is drowning in labor wars. People from school age to adult screaming loser, other, outsider. 
Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a stark warning of this in his letter, Strength to Love, in his writing, Strength to Love. In 1963, he said this, Like an unchecked cancer, hate corrodes the personality and eats away its vital unity. Hate destroys a man's sense of values and his objectivity. It causes him to describe the beautiful as ugly and the ugly as beautiful and to confuse the true with the false and the false with the true. Pastor, author, and now clothing designer Erwin McManus writes, the human heart was not created to be a container for hate. When we allow bitterness, jealousy, envy, racism, lust, greed, and arrogance to fuel our souls, we create an environment within us to be agents of violence. We live in a time when the most terrifying bomb is not a nuclear one, but a human one. When there is a vacuum of love within your soul, hate, bitterness, envy, and racism rush to fill the empty space. Love embraces and leaves no room for violence. When we say, I will craft within me space for love, then all of a sudden there is no room for that other trash. An hour before, I got the news that there was another school shooting. An hour before, I got a message that one of my son's schools was in lockdown because there was an attempted armed robbery around the corner from the school in which the suspect had fled and was on the run, so the school went into lockdown. My son, in the moment, when I talked to him, was not sure whether it was a drill or real. Because we are putting our kids through lockdown trainings for active shooters in our freaking schools. But we cannot speak about guns. We can't do that. Instead, our society has chosen to simply label people either good or bad, healthy or sick, in or out. It's in the face of such dualistic thinking that this ancient yet jolting with relevance gospel, good news of Jesus, begins by daring to confront us with a love so vast it includes, embraces, restores, and renews any and all people. People labeled as outsider which actually means that when humanity properly views through the heart of the divine, we get the message, there are no outsiders in the person of Jesus the Christ. There are no outsiders. You belong is the message tucked into the very heart of the good news which is for everyone. If it is not good news for everyone, then it's not good news for anyone. You belong. 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 You belong in the person of Jesus. I pray and plead that you would hear that in the very depths of your being. 
And I pray that we, as the church, will embody this message and mirror it and mirror the shocking genealogy that proclaims there are no outsiders. God telling somebody, as a substitute teacher this week, my wife took the opportunity to slice through the hell of violence by highlighting to students the plethora of stories of people who have had violent thoughts and feelings shattered through someone being good news to them. Do you know how many people are walking around with hurt and pain and thinking the best thing they can do is to inflict that then on others, and yet that's disrupted disconnected, shattered, and broken when someone else acts as good news to them. Someone else looks at them and smiles and says, hi. Someone else says, that load that you're carrying, whether physical or emotional, can I take some of that so you don't have to carry it by yourself? It could just be their book bag. It could be their lunch. Or it could be that they catch a tear in their eye and say, I want to be good news to you. Instead of laughing at you, people instead choose love. And then they communicate to these people, you are loved. You belong. Whether they say it in word or they do it in deed, they're letting them know you are loved. We can choose to be good news people by imaging the love and ways and person of Jesus to all people. I would argue that this is a way in being people of hope. Hope is not rooted in escape. Oh, I just hope that Jesus would come so I can get out of here. No, I hope is rooted in fulfillment. Jesus, finish what you started, and oh, by the way, we recognize that we are your body, so we will participate in that fulfillment, in that filling, in that action together which is trusting the divine to continue to surprise us in overcoming death and destruction. The past and our past is evidence of this hope. So we ground ourselves in the kind of love that sees beyond labels, a love that follows Jesus to the person who is desperate in their need for belonging, for being seen and being loved. So many people are just wanting to know, do I matter? Can I belong? And what if the church were to be the first ones to say, you are loved, you matter, and you belong. You belong here. You belong here with me. You belong here with us. Can I tell you, this is the thing that I'm trying to work on the most, is the little thing. The thing that my wife communicated as a teacher this week. She did it, which was like, I need to be in this place of the little thing. The looking across the counter and not seeing that person with, hustle up with my drink. Hustle up here, person. 
Instead, you, yes, you person, ah, I bless God that you, you're making a drink for me and you're handing it to me and you got people constantly looking at you and looking down on you and telling you to hurry up, that you're an inconvenience, you're in the way. Please let me just pause and say thank you for serving me. Wow, what a gift. You are amazing. You matter and you belong. To just be walking in the grocery aisle and see someone who's doing something more beyond this. But maybe they're looking down and they have that fuzzy look on their face because something else is going on because they have a story. And for you to go, "Hmm, I'm going to slow down and look at you and go, hi. And watch, they'll be like, why are you saying hi to me? Because you matter. Because you matter. Hi. Hi. Hi, hi, you matter. Love rooted in hope is stronger than hate. Displayed in how the good news of Jesus begins by proclaiming through a genealogy, there are no outsiders. I mean, how dare Matthew write in some of those names? And oh, by the way, to get three sections of 14, he took some editorial liberties that we're not even getting into this morning. And if he took some editorial liberties, why would you put in there these people unless you were intentional about putting in these people to communicate there are No outsiders. This is merely one reason why this genealogy matters, and it's the perfect beginning to the good news of Jesus. As told by the least likely disciple, an outsider writing to all other outsiders, announcing the arrival of the one who devours and destroys the very label, outsider. This list of names brilliantly frames how Jesus will live, teach, and model. And we need this example of fierce love now more than ever. This is how we begin. With an invitation, a recognition, for us all to see that we belong, you belong, you matter, you're created in the image of the divine. And we are invited to image that to a world that I am so exhausted of seeing all the chaos and all the violence. When do we get to scream, no more? No more. That means we'll talk about anything and everything because Humanity matters. People matter. And we will do everything to let people know they are loved. That's the invitation. I would love for us to spend some time reflecting on that, hearing that in a different way, singing it, saying it, so that we can embody it and live it, because that's what it means to be the 
church. Gracious God, we bless you for loving each one of us. You meet each one of us where we are in our lives. And you remind us, you tell us, you show us that we are loved, we belong, and we matter. God, I bless you for loving us, each one of us, and all of us, in summoning your people, the church, your body, to be your witnesses in a world that continues to devour itself. May we speak love. May we act in love. May we offer love with a smile, with a hug, with a handshake, with a heart that is drenched in you. Holy One, baptize our hearts in love that we would embody that for a world that is hurting. Gracious God, you love us and I bless you for that. Pour your love as you do in us, on us, through us that we would offer that to all others. People who do not look like us, who do not act like us, who do not vote like us, give us, as you do, hearts and love to offer them, to look at them and say, you matter, you belong, and you are loved. You are not an outsider.